This week on the Back Table Podcast. I used to, you know, think of many ears as a pure inner ear disorder. And then I started seeing over time these patterns of problems that people describe. And I just thought these are not peripheral problems. These sound like central problems. And so it made me think that there was probably something to it. And then we started looking at all the patients who presented with many errors that sort of looking for migraine features in them. And so asking them, you know, very detailed questionnaires. And we noticed that basically if you take a population of Meniere's disease, about 50% of them approximately, they fulfill the criteria for migraine headaches. And then if you take the other 50% and just look at whether they have migraine features or if they have a first degree relative with migraine, things like that, then that would cover essentially 100% of all the, the patients with Meniere's disease have some kind of migraine related uh, issue. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I could make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctorhome for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. Now, back to the show. My name is Walter Coots. I'm a professor of otolaryngology and neurological surgery at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm here today to discuss otology and migraines with Dr. Hamid Dejillian. Dr. Dejillian is a professor in otolaryngology and biomedical engineering at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. He received his medical degree with honors from the University of Minnesota and completed his otolaryngology residency at the same institution. He completed his fellowship training at Minnesota Ear, Head, and Neck Clinic and the University of Minnesota. Dr. DeGillian has published over 150 peer-reviewed manuscripts. He is an innovator who has developed treatments outside the mainstream traditional approaches. In particular, Dr. DeGillian believes in a relationship between migraines and many otologic symptoms, including Meniere's disease, vertigo, hyperacusis, malady debarkment, and otology, as well as other symptoms. Dr. DeGillian, welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Great. Could you tell us a little about your weekly practice, kind of what your week looks like? Sure. Um, so I see patients two days a week. Um, I do surgeries uh, two days a week, and then I do research the rest of the time, basically. Excellent. So you, and how many patients do you see a day in your clinic? I generally have about 50 patients between me and my physician assistant who helps me. And I usually have like a resident who helps me as well. But I'd probably end up seeing about maybe 40 of them myself with the PA and the resident. And then, then some of them are usually some things that I, that the physician assistant sees on her own. And Excellent. Yeah. That's a, that's a busy clinic, certainly. So I'm going to jump right to it. So what initially gave you the idea that many otolotic symptoms are manifestations of migraines? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, what the problem was, I noticed that there people would ask me questions about dizziness. And I was a fellow at the time and, you know, I was supposed to know the answers to these questions and I, and I couldn't answer the questions and people would say, you know, if I move my head quickly, I feel a little dizzy. Or if I look at things that move a lot, it makes me dizzy. And I just couldn't figure out what it was. And so, and I started hearing that from, from patients 
you know, I started sort of looking for a common theme amongst these patients. And it, it was sort of when the, the Meniere's patient actually told me that they're moving their eyes and they get dizzy when they're watching TV. It just made me think this cannot be a peripheral problem because a, you don't stimulate the vestibular organ by just moving your eyes if your head is not moving. So this must be something centrally. And then from there, sort of keeping track of all these sort of common themes from the patients that, that would describe these conditions, I uh, was at the American Neurotology Society meeting, um, I think 2008 or nine, and there was a very good panel that um, John Carey uh, had put on, and there were several neurologists who spoke at that panel, and it sort of opened my eyes to this sort of atypical nature of migraine. And I, sort of being a migraine sufferer myself, I started being a little more observant on what I was experiencing and noticed again the same common theme that the patients are talking about. So that's sort of how it all uh, started and it sort of evolved over time to recognize that there are a lot of other conditions where the, the triggers are the same uh, as uh, uh, migraine. Uh, and so it made me think that these are probably all migraine related. And so we started treating them uh, with migraine medications and, and lifestyle changes and they got better. And so that's how we got to this place. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I see many patients with vestibular complaints and, you know, other otologic complaints that I have a hard time, you know, really identifying what, you know, what exactly is going on. And it's very frustrating for, I think, especially the patient, but for me as well. So how do you approach a patient that comes in with kind of classic Meniere's disease? They have that unilateral fluctuating hearing loss, episodic vertigo, and maybe they don't even have a history of, of headaches. Uh, how do you uh, address these patients? How do you treat them? What's kind of your thought process? Sure. So I used to, um, you know, think of Meniere's as a pure inner ear disorder, and I, uh, you know, would treat it with diuretics, um, you know, like you know, most other people do nowadays. And then um, I started seeing over time these patterns of problems that people describe. One of which is really the the visual motion sensitivity, um, the significant hyperacusis that some of them have, um, and I just thought these these you know are not peripheral problems. These sound like central problems. And so it made me think that there was probably something to it. And then we started probably, I can't remember back when, but we started looking at all the patients who presented with migraine, I'm sorry, with many errors that sort of looking for migraine features in them. And so asking them, you know, very detailed questionnaires about not only all the sort of diagnostic criteria for migraine headaches, but also asking them a lot of the the typical things we see in migraine, like visual motion sensitivity, uh, sound sensitivity, light sensitivity, about their family history, um, other migraine-related conditions like chronic uh, sinus headaches, uh, ice cream headaches, things like that. And we noticed that basically if you take a population of Meniere's disease, about 50% of them approximately have, they fulfill the criteria for migraine headaches. And then if you take the other 50% and just look at you know, whether they have migraine features or if they have a first degree relative with migraine, things like that, then that would cover essentially 100% of all the, the patients with Meniere's disease have some kind of migraine related uh, issue. Interesting. So, so you feel that, so like you say, all patients with Meniere's disease is some sort of migraine variant or it's associated with migraine. So what is your treatment approach for Meniere's disease? I think, you know, typically I would start with low solid diets, maybe put them on a diuretic, if that doesn't work, consider beta histine. Uh, what is your approach, your initial approach for a patient with Meniere's disease? 
Yeah. So what I uh, do nowadays, um, and probably have been doing for quite a while now, is I will uh, first discuss uh, migraine. I used to try to tease out a he headache history and things like that. And I really, over time, I realized these patients respond so well to migraine uh, treatment. I, I don't even need to look for it. I mean, uh, so I, I don't actually ask about headaches anymore. Um, I will occasionally ask them about neck stiffness. Sometimes I ask them really sometimes some questions more to convince the patient because the patients come to me, they've seen other neurotologists, uh, they've been treated with the standard treatment and they haven't gotten better. And so then I'll tell them, well, this is, this is what the issue is and try to really convince them because sometimes they've been treating with someone for five, 10 years. And then I come up with a completely different theory of what they have. And so the patients don't always believe you. So I have to kind of spend a little extra time, make sure that the patient buys into what I'm telling them. So they will follow the treatment. Um, and what I, I do tell them that to follow the migraine diet. Um, now there's obviously a significant overlap between the migraine and Meniere's diet. But the one thing I do not restrict them on sodium. So I tell them they can have as much sodium as they want, pure sodium, like salt, but they need to drink a lot of water. And so I tell patients they need to drink two liters of water per day. If they have a very salty meal, they just need to drink more water because migraine is really related to hydration rather than to salt per se. And then the other factors such as glutamate and tyramine, which happen to be in very high sodium containing food, I tell them to avoid. And then I usually start them on magnesium and uh, vitamin B2. And then um, if their vertigo is frequent, I'll start them on nortriptyline most commonly to start with. But depending on what their other medications are, I may start them on uh, topiramate or uh, verapamil potentially as well. I must say that I, then you know, probably in the last 10 years, I've maybe given diuretic one time. Uh, and that was really because everything else failed. And uh, beta histine, I actually don't prescribe, you know, as you probably know, beta histine has been evaluated by the FDA. Um, it was approved by the FDA originally back in the 60s, but then the FDA actually um, withdrew their approval because they, they did not find adequate data. And then they applied for FDA approval again in the last 20 years sometime, I think, and the FDA rejected them. So the data on beta histine is not very strong, although you know, some patients will anecdotally tell you that they get better with it, but I, you know, I don't prescribe it just because it's, it's expensive to get also and difficult for patients because it's not FDA approved. So they have to get it from Canada or a compounding pharmacy, which makes it very expensive. That's interesting that uh, I think most neurotologists, otolaryngologists would probably think diuretic is the first line treatment. And you're, you're saying, Hey, no, let's, let's treat this as migraines right off the bat. I, in my practice, after reading your, your studies and, and your work, I, I sort of think of migraine treatments as my second line, you know, after diuretics and beta histine. That's a, a very interesting approach and sounds like it's worked very well for your practice, especially since you're seeing some of the most difficult patients that have failed many other treatments from other otolaryngologists and neurotologists. So, on, so nortriptyline, that's kind of my first line as well. You know, I think one thing we have to get comfortable with if we're going to treat patients with migraines is the medications. And that's really not in our training, or at least not in my training when I, um, you know, back in my residency and fellowship. So I think nortriptyline, it sounds like it's a good first line. I think it sounds like most otolaryngologists can get pretty comfortable treating that. Can you tell me a little bit about your, your dosage and side effects and concerns with nortriptyline and how you discuss this with the patient? Sure. So I start with usually depending on the patient, if someone is getting very frequent vertigo and just wants to get better, like ASAP, 
I will start them at 25 milligrams and then usually go for two weeks and then increase it to 50. And then if they're not better after, you know, two weeks of that, then we'll go to 75. But most patients um, who are not getting very frequent vertigo, I will start them at 10 milligrams and then every two weeks we'll increase by 10. So we go 10, 20, 30, and then from 30, we'll usually jump to 50 and then 75. That's sort of the, the routine. The main side effects, I tell the patients usually don't panic when you see the side effect list on the package insert that the pharmacy will give you. I sometimes tell them, don't look it up because nortriptyline was FDA approved for depression at very high doses. We never reach those doses that nortriptyline was used for. So we rarely see those, those uncommon side effects that are listed on the package insert. The side effects that we do see is somnolence. So most people will get sleepy from it. Um, and I think that's one of the potential reasons nortriptyline, in addition to probably its, its um, anti-migraine activity, it helps because it makes people sleep better. And sleep is a very significant trigger for patients uh, with migraine. The second is at low doses, and nortriptyline has an anti-anxiety effect. And so it does help with the stress component of um, migraine, uh, which is another significant trigger. Stress and sleep are probably the, the most common triggers. So it sort of controls two of the triggers in a way, plus it, you know, it helps them with the migraine at the same time. And then, so I tell them about somnolence. I tell them about dry mouth. Some people get dry mouth at low doses, but you know, generally speaking, it's not a big problem, I must say. People can get tachycardia from it. You know, I tell them to check their heart rate before they go up on the dose. Um, make sure that it's less than 100 uh, on their heart rate. If we're going to maintain them um, at 75 or raise the dose potentially, sometimes people have gotten better, but they're not fully better. So well, they're at 75. And so then I want to push it up to like 85 or maybe 100 sometimes. I will then get an EKG to check for the QT uh, interval or to the QTC technically. And to make sure that that's not increased, because rarely, of course, nortriptyline is associated with increased QTC um, interval. And so we just have to keep that in mind if we're going to keep them on it long term. I don't check blood levels um, like was traditionally done in psychiatry. I just go based on the EKG. You know, one of the challenges of nortriptyline is if I have a patient um, either with a vestibular migraines or Meniere's disease I want to treat as a as a migraine variant, um, you know, they may be on other medications, maybe psychiatric medications, other migraine medications, or maybe it's a patient that, that's an, an older patient. I worry about, you know, putting these patients on on these sort of medications, just not, you know, again, being an otolaryngologist, not a neurologist. Um, you know, how do you address the patients that are on other medications for migraines or maybe psychiatric medications, anxiolytics? And also, secondly, you know, how do you, do you, are you comfortable prescribing nortripline for patient, older patients? Yeah, great question. Um, so I uh, usually will do nortriptyline if they're, I used to actually not do it at all if they're on another um, anti, uh, you know, uh, or serotonin, basically, uh, uh, blocker of some kind, uh, SSRI or SNRI. Over time, I've become a little more brave, I should say. It, as long as they're not on like four times the dose, I had a patient uh, who was a psychiatrist himself. He had he was on like two or three antidepressants, and he had sudden hearing loss. And I treat sudden hearing loss as a migraine phenomenon, and so I give them nortriptyline. And I told them, you know, you know, I'm just the serotonin syndrome. He said, oh, he said we never worry about serotonin syndrome. I said, well, just keep you know keep track of your heart rate and all that stuff. 
And, you know, I tell patients if they're on it, uh, other antidepressants at high doses, usually four times the starting dose. So for example, for like Zoloft, if it, they're on 200 milligrams or something, um, I'll tell them if your heart rate goes up, you feel like the sweating and things like that, go to the ER and say, I'm on these medicines and they will know what to, what to do. So that's, that's what I usually tell them. I must say, I haven't had any, I do give it to elderly patients. Some patients are very sensitive. So migraine patients are very sensitive to medications. So sometimes I will start them using the liquid nortriptyline, which uh, is for like pediatric usage. So I'll give them like five milligrams or sometimes even two milligrams. And so I have given it in elderly, you know, there is a warning that comes up on the electronic record system about over 65 and the problems with anticholinergics and things like that. I must say, I have not had that problem. People generally start feeling well at some point. You know, it's uncommon in the elderly. We have to go up really high on the dosage. I do use paroxetine or Paxil as an alternative to nortriptyline if there's any question of uh, arrhythmia. So if the patient has an arrhythmia history, I don't want to risk it. So I will not use a nortriptyline in those cases. And I'll use paroxetine or topiramate. So topiramate is a very good medicine or topamax. If someone has an extensive cardiac history and you're worried about messing up their blood pressure or heart rate or rhythm, then topiramate is, is something that's totally foolproof for that kind of problem. Yeah, that's, I, I was actually, I'm going to ask you a little about topiramate. I know that's uh, second line treatment. What are the side effects of topiramate that you're concerned about? It sounds like you're feels a very safe medication for most patients, but what kind of side effects do you discuss with patients? The main side effect that people can get from topiramate at the low dose, I should say at low doses, very uncommon people get side effects. But if they do get side effects, it will be, sometimes they'll get paresthesias around their lips or their hands, uh, their fingers. It is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. So it sort of has that effect like, like uh, acetazolamide does. And then very uncommonly, patients can have uh, kidney stones uh, from it uh, because it uh, acidifies the urine. So I tell them that if if they have a kidney stone history, then I don't give it. Or sometimes I'll say, if that's the only thing left, I'll tell them, go check with your urologist to make sure you can take this. Because there are some stones, Some if their stone has been identified, the acidification is not an issue for it. What's your typical dose regimen for topiramate? Yeah, topiramate, I started at 25 and go up once a week um, by 25 milligrams up to 150. Um, so it's a six-week regimen. I generally, most of the dosage regimens I have are six-week regimens. So I start the patient, it's not too long so that they, they, you know, um, they don't feel like I'm abandoning them by telling them to come back, you know, three months later. And then at the same time, I want to be able to have control over it and so that if anything is not working, then we can we can make adjustments quickly for them so that they don't suffer for too long. So I usually will start them on whatever medicine we're going to start um, and see them usually in six weeks. And then um, based on what their symptoms are at that point, then we'll make uh, changes to their regimen. I think we've spoke about this before. If nortriptyline is not working, a lot of times you'll add topiramate to that. Is that true? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is an additive effect that we see with the medications. So I will combine them and once they are better, then I'll slowly take away the first drug that, that didn't work as well. And then I generally try to, I tell the patients, this is for three months. You're going to be three months of stable symptoms or meaning like no symptoms. Or if you have a symptom, you can easily identify the trigger. 
So they said, well, I didn't get good sleep this night and then I got dizzy the next morning. And so then I know, well, it's a sleep problem. I'm not going to raise their dose or keep them on medication forever because they know what their trigger is. They just need to fix that problem, basically. So I will usually keep them at th for three months on the, the, the combo. We'll start taking away the first drug and then we'll then uh, take away the second drug. And then, then at the end, we'll tell it tell them to start experimenting with the, the food items so they can find which food items they're triggered by. And then if everything goes well, they can, they've identified their triggers, they can avoid them and then they'll be good. I mean, I, as I, I tell them, you know, I have migraine, I know what my triggers are. I'm very careful with them. And so then I don't get symptoms. I don't have to be on daily medication. I don't have to do anything. I just know what I need to do to make sure I don't get it. And so then I'm very careful. And that's what you need to do. That's why I tell the patients. So how do you tell them to log their symptoms? Is this something that you just leave it up to them or are there suggestions like an app or do you tell them to journal or what do you, how do you tell them to yeah. log their symptoms? I usually, I have this little uh, form that we created basically has like, you know, what their symptoms were and, and what time that was, what they ate that day. I usually tell them the trigger is generally within about six to eight hours of the episode. So I tell them if it's like three in the afternoon you know, look very specifically at what you ate at lunch and, you know, how much water you had to drink and whether you ate enough and you're not hungry, you know, whether you had stress. I usually tell them that if they, if their sleep is inadequate or their sleep trigger, most commonly they're going to wake up with the symptoms. So patients who wake up in the morning, you know, it's usually most commonly going to be sleep, but it can be due to a food item they ate at dinner, for example, dehydration or hunger, you know, not eating enough at, at dinner. And then a very critical early morning one is caffeine withdrawal. So I tell patients to completely eliminate caffeine slowly over a couple of weeks because caffeine withdrawal is a, is a significant trigger for migraine. Hamid, you lost me on that one. I don't think I could do that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I tell patients, I said, listen, I know it, this, this is going to sound strange to you, but I said, you will have more energy after you stop caffeine. And I, you know, I'd read this before and I must say, I didn't believe it myself until I stopped uh, caffeine myself. And, you know, a lot of the energy you get from caffeine is actually related to the withdrawal of the previous caffeine from your system. So if you actually are not drinking caffeine, you don't feel tired and therefore you don't get as much energy out of caffeine. Anyway, so <laughs> I think you can try it. Uh, <laughs> I don't I know. You might, we'll see. You might, you might see. <laughs> Those side effects may be worse than any medicines we're talking about if I try to quit caffeine. You know, it was interesting, you were mentioning that you treat sudden sensory hearing loss as a migraine phenomenon. Can you tell me a little more about that? Yes. So again, I started noticing these patients with sudden hearing loss coming in and describing, you know, very classic, you know, either classic migraine or atypical migraine symptoms leading up or right at the time of onset. A lot of times the patients will have, you know, they'll have the, sometimes paresthesias of the scalp or they'll have this unilateral neck stiffness, which is another migraine-related phenomenon. And so they, they describe that at the time of their sudden loss. Or, you know, some, you know, uncommonly, they'll have a headache right at the time as well. But most commonly, it's like, you know, they, they'll feel like paresthesias around the ear or the head or the neck stiffness um, or sometimes sinus pain, things like that. And so I will, um, I started a few years ago treating all the sudden hearing loss patients, in addition to the oral and intratympanic steroids that I start right away, I will I started giving them 
a nortriptyline and topiramate as well uh, in combination. And um, we actually then studied our patients over a period of time. And so we had the sort of our historical control from like the year before um, I started doing it. And then, then the ones that we treated like this. And then we had, I think, about 46 or 47 patients per group. And we found that the uh, patients treated with the migraine regimen, additional migraine regimen, they had better low-frequency um, hearing outcomes. And so we published, I think, maybe a year or two ago or something like that. So I now, I mean, I've been doing it routinely probably for the last five, six years or so on all the sudden hearing loss patients. And I always thought that they had a better outcome. But then, um, you know, I, I told my postdoc, I said, let's, let's study this to make sure I'm not over-treating anybody. And so then we looked at it. And so then the data definitely showed that the low-frequency hearing outcome was, was much better. That's very interesting. And, you know, Hamid, I, I do commend you. You don't only, you have theories, but you also publish and, and you show benefit of these theories. And I think it's very helpful. And I encourage uh, any of the listeners to look at uh, Dr. Jillian's work on, on these subjects. Let's move on. So I guess vestibular migraines, do you treat these very similar to Meniere's disease or any differences in your treatment? No, I treat them exactly the same way. I mean, I think that I am a little more aggressive on Meniere's disease if they have a hearing loss that's more acute or and I should say that uh, a few years ago, I started treating e- even patients with chronic sudden loss. So meaning they'd had a sudden loss, you know, three months or six months before, but they still had active migraine symptoms. I, I should say initially I treated everyone, but then now I'm a little bit more selective. But what we found is that if somebody had had a sudden loss and we looked at a population of, I think, 20, 25 patients, and, and the pap- we have the paper out there. So, And most of these papers are available because University of California sort of wants all the papers to be um, available. So the entire paper usually is available to to people on PubMed. And if if not, people can contact me. I'll send them the paper. But anyways, uh, we looked at patients who'd had a period of time after their sudden loss, and we started treating them with just migraine uh, treatment. And we found that patients had about one third of the patients went from a non-serviceable hearing, so hearing that couldn't be rehabilitated with a hearing aid, to serviceable hearing. And about 50% of them had some improvement and about 14% had a complete resolution uh, of their hearing. They went back to their baseline. And these were patients who had had months of hearing loss. I mean, I've had you know patients who had been down for three months or six months, and then you know we were able to bring their hearing back up and they could use a hearing aid or, or you know, and, and those few patients, they come back to normal. And what we found was that patients who had active migraine symptoms, so they had oral pressure, so a pressure in their ear or neck stiffness or a headache that was sort of continuous. You know, I tell the patients there, there are two components to this. There is a reversible component to your hearing loss that might be due to an active migraine. There is an irreversible component to your hearing loss, which that we can't control and we don't know how much of is which. So if you want, you know, we can kind of go all in. We'll, usually I just start with nortriptyline and topiramate, all the migraine regimen and the, the two supplements. Uh, for six weeks. If they don't have improvement, then I will um, do intratympanic steroid injections. Or if there's some improvement and they're not back to baseline, I'll do intratympanic injections. I usually do two of them. If they've never been treated with prednisone uh, for their sudden loss, I will put them on a course of prednisone as well. And so that's sort of the the way I usually uh, treat the chronic sudden loss uh, patients. So if a patient with Meniere's comes in and they have a hearing that's been down for you know, somewhere in the six month or less vicinity, and they have any kind of active pressure symptoms, 
then I will treat them aggressively right away with uh, the migraine regimen, with the medications and everything. So that's interesting. You will do steroid injections. I think most of us sort of put on an arbitrary six-week, you know, post-event sudden hearing loss. We maybe wouldn't consider steroid injections. Although I agree with you, if somebody has what looks like high drops, I've seen that respond, you know, even months out. But you'll even with a what we think of as a viral or maybe, I guess, migraine sudden hearing loss, you'll treat them with intramic steroids even months out. Yes, um, I do. And that's, you know, I, I, I discuss it with the patients. I tell them if they don't respond to the migraine meds, that the chance that the steroid injections are not, are going to not work is, is high. But I said, we've had patients who've had improvement. So if you want everything done, then that's what we'll do. But we can be totally conservative. And I really don't try to push the injection because if the migraine meds have not worked, the efficacy is, is not very high. But, you know, I tell them about 10% chance that they'll have some improvement with it. But, you know, if they want it, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. If they don't, I definitely don't push it at all because obviously there's a tiny risk. I mean, the, the risk of perforation is very small. I mean, if, if we're very judicious with the phenol. And then, uh, you know, the other issue is really the, the cost of copays and stuff like that, that, that sometimes uh, are an issue for some patients. Yeah, very, very interesting approach. Before we leave the, that topic, do you recommend books? I know you recommend uh, dietary supplementation. What other, besides the medications, what else do you tell the patients to, maybe some homework they need to do, books they need to read? You've kind of uh, touched on this a little bit, but what else do you discuss with the patients? Sure. So, I mean, just sort of for the listeners, I lay out the the five main triggers, which are stress, sleep, diet, and I tell that the diet is dehydration, hunger, and then the food items. And the food items are primarily caffeine, glutamate, which is in preservative, so ready-to-eat packaged foods, basically, uh, things like that have it. Tyramine, which is in protein that's been processed in any way, or protein that sits around a long time, basically. It could be dried fruit, it could be a, a very soft fruit, things like that. Bananas are very high in tyramine. The fourth molecule would be histamine, and that's, um, that's in citrus fruits and in um, nuts. So I tell them about those. I have a handout that actually originally was developed by John Kerry and Michael Taishido, and I made a lot of edits to it. I've changed the diet a little bit uh, based on sort of my own experience in reading and added a number of other conditions. I tried to make it a little bit more understandable for the patients. So I give them that handout. If they're patients who really want to drill down, I do have this like, it's, it's like a grocery list that I initially got online and then I, I made a lot of changes to it. And then I will recommend they read the Heal Your Headache book by uh, the author's name is Buckholtz. And that has a very comprehensive uh, diet uh, chapter. And so I tell them to, f- to follow everything that's in that book. You know, one of the challenges I've run into is you may recommend these, you know, reading a book and, and, and reading these handouts and and it may be a patient that you just you just sense they're not going to really do the you know sleep hygiene dietary changes, and as a patient, I'm probably guilty of this as well. <laughs> but um, what do you, is there any anything you do? You know, if you have a patient they come in and they say, "No, doc, I just want you to give medicines to get better." What do you say to them? I usually tell them there are two parts to this deal. There is the part that I'm going to do, and there is a more important part that you have to do. And I say, if you don't fix your trigger. There is no amount of medicine that can overcome some of these triggers. So if someone is consuming six, seven caffeinated beverages a day, if someone has obstructive sleep apnea, 
if they have chronic insomnia. I tell him we have to fix that as part of the fixing this. I, you know, I basically describe to him that there's a threshold in the brain. And when the brain activity reaches the threshold, then they will start getting symptoms. And there are two approaches to this. One is to elevate the threshold so that they don't get symptoms, and that would be with medications. And the other would be to reduce uh, the activity, which would be uh, the trigger control. And I say, well, you have to do two together because the patients want the easy way out. And, and, I, you know, and that's totally understandable. That's what I would want to potentially. But I tell them, this is a more natural way of doing it. You have to live with this condition forever. You might as well identify what's causing the problem and control that because, and especially in younger patients, I, I tell them, I'm not going to put you on medication forever. You need to learn what your triggers are so you can manage this problem. So I really do try to spend time. Now, I definitely agree that not every patient is compliant and definitely for on average, you know, the average migraine uh, patient is, has obviously more anxiety and stuff because that's a significant trigger for a lot of them. And so they're not always easy to convince. But I usually, when I, I see them sometimes initially, or most of the time, it's initially I see them with my PA or I see them on my own, and then they will follow up with my PA or nurse practitioner, and then they will see them, you know, and if they're not getting better, then they'll sort of come back on, and then I'll talk to them. And about then I usually go and kind of lay down the law. I said, listen, you need to follow this stuff. Otherwise, you are, we're not going to even give you medications anymore. Because if you're not controlling that, we can't control the condition, and then you're going to blame me, but it's really a problem that then you need to be working on. And so I do have patients, if they're not getting better and they say, none of this stuff you gave me worked, and so I tell them, you're going to have to write down everything you ate, how much water you drank, you know, how much sleep you got, all that stuff, and bring that to me. And so, so then we can identify stuff for them, uh, because a lot of times, you know, patients even, you know, I've had a patient who was an engineer. And he had this giant Excel sheet he brought in. And he said, there is no pattern to any of this. And I said, just let me look at it. And I said, you know, I just like, it was very clear to me every morning that he had a ham and uh, eggs breakfast, he got dizzy that same day. But it was like six hours later, of course. And so, because the patients are looking for something that happens immediately. And I said, this is this is your pattern. And he, that's all he had to do. We fixed that problem, you know, by just altering his diet, there's no medication needed. So, you know, that that's a lot of times it's, you know, it takes a little time. Uh, it take, We have to, you know, I've educated a, a few uh, PAs and NPs who work with me, who uh, really spend the time because the patients do need a lot of time sometimes. And I just don't have the time to do this with everyone. And so I need to rely on physician extenders to help me um, so that we can help more people. Yeah, that was my my next topic, and and you discuss that is you know you're seeing 50 patients a day, and you know one of the things is a notologist. We're surgeons, and I think we all enjoy being in the operating room, and we also feel it's important to help you know patients with medical otology type problems. So how do you work with your PA to make it efficient? You know, to give these patients enough time to understand their treatment, which is going to take time to understand that. Do you, are there any tricks on training the PAs? Do you do handouts? Do you have sort of uh, pathways? How do you create that system that you have? I think, you know, one thing that is probably necessary is that if we're going to train the, the PAs is we need to sort of be comfortable with the medications ourselves. So I think that's sort of where it started. I, I used to just not have the capacity to see all these patients. So I would just start them on a medication and I would 
tell them to send me emails through their email system. And then what I realized is that if one is not as hands-on with the patients, it's sometimes it's hard to to fix this. And so I, you know, and there are very few sort of medical otologists uh, out there. And so I thought that probably the best way to treat these patients would be to have a physician extender who can who can do this. And so they usually will come and spend a couple of weeks, uh, initially maybe three to four weeks with me. You know, the volume of these patients is so high that, you know, they kind of learn the drill. I mean, I, I had a high school student who volunteered and wanted to learn about medicine and she spent a month with me. And then at the end, she sent me a thank you card, said, I can, you know, thank you for everything. And then I, I, I can now <laughs> diagnose and treat all migraine-related ear disorders because she's just seen so much of it. And so I think that's sort of the, the PAs and NPs learned really quickly. And I've been incredibly impressed with how intelligent the NPs and PAs that I've worked with have been and how quickly they pick it up. I do have them read the, the Heal Your Headache book. I do give them the handout. I do give them a couple of um, talks uh, on migraine, the, the medication treatment, and then on some of the other stuff like BPV management, and then, you know, sudden hearing loss and how to do the injections. And I have them come into the OR with me because I usually do my intratympanic steroid injections, like in cochlear implants before uh, we start. So the steroid can be in there longer. And so they will come in um, and do that uh, with those patients and, and learn where I could sort of coach them better. Then they start doing it in clinic with me. So then they can independently manage all these patients. So if they need steroid injections and whatever, they can do all of that stuff. And so then the, the PA will see patients on other days where I'm operating or I'm on, uh, doing my research. And so then they can, you know, essentially take care of all the patients. So then the only patients that will sort of then come back to me are the ones who are not getting better after a couple of medicines. And we're trying to figure out why they're not better. And then I'll sit and spend a little more time with the patient to try to figure it out. Yeah, we have excellent PAs as well. We don't, and they, they treat these patients are very helpful. It's interesting you have the PAs and your nurse practitioners do the steroid injection. That's something we have not utilized, but that probably works very well, especially if somebody's in trouble and you're out of the clinic for a few days. Any, had there been any, any issues with your university on having the, the PAs perform the injections? No, um, we have a, um, basically the way that our uh, sort of privileging works is that they have to have done three under supervision. Um, I have to have given them a lecture. There has to be a quiz on the lecture. And then, you know, I would sort of grade the quiz and then, you know, we submit it so that allows them to have the privileges to do it. You know, it's not a very difficult, um, procedure. You know, I think in terms of, you know, injection, I think a lot of it is, they get comfortable with using a microscope and cleaning cerumen. You know, injection is sort of really the next sort of thing that they, they got to do. I've not had, thankfully, um, any problems with perforations or any issues at all. I tell them about all of the nuances that I've learned to prevent perforations and um, side effects like dizziness and things like that from the injection. And they're really good about sort of following the regimen. And so I, I haven't had any issues. I mean, obviously, those issues can occur from me doing them or, you know, my residents doing them. But probably in the last, I think maybe, I think four or five years, I've had um, an NP or a PA or both. I haven't had any problems with that at all. And our institution has been okay as, you know, they, they just wanted a sort of a regimented uh, system of a lecture, a quiz, you know, hands-on training. So we've done all that to, to prevent any complications. No, that's great. They're very helpful. 
I'm going to pivot a little bit. What are your thoughts on persistent postural perceptual dizziness, also 3PD? Do you have any thoughts on that, differentiating that from bacillary migraines? Do you think triple PD is migraines as well? Yeah, and we actually have two papers coming up. One is on just the, again, prevalence of migraine in the PPPD population and then treating the PPPD population with migraine regimen. I don't know where they are in the process if they're, but they're, they're in they're under review, uh, I think. Uh, maybe one of them has been uh, is under revisions or something. You know, when I, again, PPPD, a lot of the overlap with the sort of the migraine symptoms, the visual motion sensitivity. We wrote a paper on MALD-Debarkman syndrome or MDDS or disembarkment syndrome a few years ago, showing again, migraine is very common and they, they responded really well to migraine uh, treatment. Um, and I tell them that really PPVD is effectively a an MDDS without a you know a trigger uh, that happens. So MDDS obviously is a it happens after a prolonged you know boat ride or um, or a plane ride, whereas PPVD occurs more spontaneously and usually associated with most commonly with a, a vertigo episode that starts it. And a lot of the symptoms are really migraine uh, type symptoms. Again, visual motion sensitivity being the, the hallmark of PVD. And we've had really good results in general treating these patients. Now, do we fix everyone? No. I mean, I wish we could. I mean, there are patients that um, really it's hard to overcome some of their triggers. I mean, probably the most difficult ones are patients who take care of a spouse who is ill or has Alzheimer's or something where their sleep is interrupted every day, they have chronic stress. And some of those are just unfortunately very difficult to fix. And interestingly is that a lot of these patients get better once the spouse has passed away and that, that sort of stress is relieved, their, their sleep is back to normal, the problem sort of goes away. So, I mean, I, sometimes we can't fix every everyone. I mean, there's definitely that's definitely true. But we can help a vast majority of them with the migraine regimen in, in the PPVD population. A lot of the literature shows that SSRIs are successful for treating triple PD. It sounds like you lean towards nortriptyline and Topamax, uh, similar to how you treat bacillary migraines. What are your thoughts about incorporating an SSRI for the treatment of PPPD? Yes. Um, I think yeah, a lot of the literature is on um, venlafaxine or Effexor. I don't use it very commonly. Sometimes the patient will come in insisting that they want that, and so I will give it to them. But generally speaking, I will start with just the, the routine nortriptyline topiramate. I mean, when you think about really nortriptyline, I mean, it is a tricyclic antidepressant, but its effect is like an SSRI slash SNRI, which is what venlafaxine is. And so I usually just start with what I use most commonly, and I know the side effect profile. I know all of the intricacies of it. I think it's good to become familiar with the sort of the, the meds, which I mean, I generally probably more than 95% of patients are going to be on one of three medications, which is nortriptyline, topiramate, or verapamil. I will use paroxetine as well, probably in those that I think have a lot of the stress component or sleep component, but they can't take a, an, a TCA because of cardiac-related issues. So those are probably the, my go-to meds. I do use venlafaxine, but probably much less commonly. I think you know the etiology uh, at least based on the patient's history and what our papers are that are going to be coming out hopefully soon, are that these are migraine-related problems, that PPD is a migraine-related issue, and that really treating the migraine uh, helps them. Now, you know, I think they, a lot of times studies, when studies are done, they are done because 
you try to control it well. So you say, this person gets this medicine at this dose and this, this group just gets a single pill. And I, the problem with migraine, it's, it's, it's a lot more complex than that. It's, you need to sort of do the lifestyle changes and you need to do dose escalation, which very few migraine trials do. And so I, or PPVD trials, let's say, um, do. So I, I don't subscribe to the one pill, one dose uh, regimen of treatment because I think everyone's different and people's sensitivity and tolerance is different and all that stuff. So, so I, I, I try to tell patients it's not very simple. Like I can just give you a single pill and that's going to fix it. It might take two or three pills. It might take a couple months to get to these doses. You need to do the lifestyle changes. But if you, we do all this stuff, I can tell you with high degree of certainty, you will get better. And sometimes I should say that it's really important that we communicate to the patient that we know what you have and we know we can get you better. And that a lot of times has a pretty significant positive um, psychological impact on the patient because they've seen several physicians and they've told them, you know, I don't know what you have or there's nothing else I can do for you. And so then they, there's this sort of despair and stress and depression that comes from that. And I think giving them the confidence really, I think, helps sort of turn the page on and, and trying to get them better. Well, Dr. Jalilin, I think that uh, sums up the talk and I really appreciate your time. I want to be respectful of your time. Are there any other um, comments you may have um, that, that I may have not have asked that you'd like to tell the audience? I would make good friends with uh, your uh, sleep uh, colleagues. If someone has sleep apnea, I will send them to my colleague in our department who's a, a, a sleep uh, specialist. If they have insomnia, we usually send them to our psychiatry sleep specialist because sleep is a significant component of migraine on a lot of patients. And I think that's something that we need to look at um, on every patient. So I do ask everyone about snoring and sleep apnea. I look at their, you know, their oropharynx to look for signs of uh, potential sleep apnea. And so I do get sleep uh, specialists involved um, very early. And I sometimes for sleep apnea patients, I tell them I'm not going to treat you until you get your sleep apnea treated. Because some patients just fixing their sleep apnea will fix the entire problem. So that's probably uh, one thing. I would, would really encourage uh, listeners to tell patients, you know, once hopefully they recognize this stuff and they, uh, they treat patients to, to give them confidence that they will get better. Um, because I think that's a sort of a, a significant component of, uh, of the stress that sometimes people have is the fact that they have this condition, they've had it for months and they, it, it's not getting better. And so if they have hope and you do all the right things, then, you know, you can help a lot of patients and you will find, I think that those are the happiest patients we have. I mean, I, I think they have a lot more happy patients who have had uh, migraine related issues than, uh, you know, the patients who get the surgery, they're happy and then they kind of move on and you, you don't see them back anymore. But the migraine patients, they're, they're happy and they will do everything possible to help you for other things. Uh, and I mean, we've been very fortunate that have had a lot of patients who've um, donated uh, to our research and which has allowed us to do a lot more work and research by, by bringing in more people to, to now not only study the clinical aspect, but now also the, the uh, basic science aspect of this. Uh, and so I think that's a critical component is really helping the patients and you will have a lot of uh, happy patients from that. Well, Hamid, thank you so much for your time. This was a, just a, a great discussion. I think the listeners are going to learn a lot from this. And I've certainly enjoyed reading your work, talking about your your treatment style. And it has changed the way I've, I've treated these patients. And I do agree with you. When you're successful, if these patients have these chronic 
debilitating uh, conditions, they are your most grateful patients. So continue the good work. And I appreciate your time this, today and hope the listeners uh, in, learn as much as I did. Thank you very much for the very kind invitation. If listeners have any questions, you know, feel free to contact me directly as well. I mean, I nothing gives me more pleasure than teaching other physicians to do this because it's just basically allows us to help more patients, uh, you know, uh, across the world, really. I mean, um, it's probably the most common thing I talk about either. And even though I'd rather talk about surgery um, and all that, but I think I can help more people uh, sometimes talking about migraine uh, because they're, it's a very underserved population because very few people understand this condition, unfortunately. Um, and fortunately, more and more people are understanding it and, and are helping patients. So thank you for the invite and allowing us to get the word out. You're welcome. And thank you for being here. And uh, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.